A dead man walking, a prophet, and a podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> so many mysteries to unpack. Welcome back to the Such Nerds podcast. We hope everybody had a nice holiday. I am Jason, your host tonight from Hartford, Connecticut, with my co-hosts. Peter from Long Island. And Dan from Los Angeles. We are kicking off with our first episode of Second Foundation, the third book in the Foundation novel series by Isaac Asimov. To get things started today, before we dig in too deep, I would just like to share a little information with my co-hosts and with our listeners about the podcast so far. We've gotten through two seasons. At this point, we've covered the first two books of the Foundation series. We have over 700 downloads as of this recording. And the most impressive thing to me is the spread globally of our listeners. And I would just like to take an opportunity to let you all know where our podcast is being listened to and to thank all those listeners across the globe for participating and we we really hope you're enjoying not surprisingly our largest listener base is in the united states uh, with a close second in canada so thank you very much our third largest contingency is actually from the Netherlands. So thank you very much to those in the Netherlands for listening to the show. A bedankt. That's how you say thank you in Dutch. Bedankt. Bedankt. B-E-D-A-N-K-T. Bedankt. I used to date a girl with a bedankt. <laughs> <laughs> that's not not a that's not a bedankt bedankt, Peter. Bedankt bedankt. I, I mean, it wasn't that big, much. so it was just thank you very much. It was just a bedankt. Okay. It was just a bedankt. It was suitably big. just like you're hosting so bedankt to those in the netherlands thank you very much uh uk i'm told they use the words thank you in those regions apparently in the uk you uh express your gratitude by saying thank you so thank you to the britons and irish and all the happy countries of uh, welsh yes 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 scots all of them we love you all and i would just like to offer some honorable mentions here uh, where we have uh, a, a sizable number of downloads in Romania, Germany, Brazil, Finland, and New Zealand. New so, Zealand. Yes. Yeah. So we're, we ra- kind of wrapped the globe and uh, I'm pretty proud of us now in our third season and reaching such a wide audience. So thank you to my co-hosts for your perseverance and for not getting murdered between the last season and the current season. My pleasure, Jason. Yep. Speaking of our listeners, Peter, I believe, again, you have a stack so high, I can't see the top of it on the view here of, through your video. It's incredibly high. So, In fact, you can barely see my face from the video. If you can find your way out from that pile of mail that you're, you know, swimming and, fla- and flailing in, um, 
after you find the the salient uh, fan letters for this week, or I should say, listener mail, maybe I don't know if they're fans. Sometimes they're a little mean to us. So, yeah, no, but I, uh, uh, I, I definitely have a couple of my favorites here. Excellent. So let Take me start with let me start with this one. This question in from enjoying the podcast. Dear nerds, are you planning on at some point reading the prequels and sequels? Dan, why don't you field this question for us? Thanks, Peter. Uh, I have a lot of plans and goals in my life. Um, amongst those goals uh, is reading the prequels and sequels and autobiographies uh, associated with Foundation and its authors. Um, but as for right now, we're going to kind of chew through the books and then um, provided we don't get murdered between now and then, I think we'll, you know, I'm certainly interested in reading the prequels and sequels. How about you, Jason? Yeah, I think this uh, this question is timely and a reflection of maybe our neophyticism, if I may, if I may. <laughs> as we uh, began this podcast, we were not uh, we we're not necessarily podcast the podcasting experts, and we did not have the podcasting savoir faire that we do today. Uh, we probably should have kicked off our first episode just outlining, you know, what our plans were for the Asimov books. Uh, for the listeners in general, but I think to to answer this viewer and also inform the rest of the listeners, we absolutely uh, have it in our plans to get through all of the prequels and sequels. Um, the interesting thing about most of those uh, additional books is they were largely written after the um, the first three books here, so we decided early on that we we're going to start in chronological order, and that's where we're at. You know, the third book of the original series. After this season, we are going to be moving on to the next chronologically written book uh, and then make our way through those prequels and sequels. So that's the plan as of now. Yeah. And we have to fit it in between all the franchises that we're opening for my new church. Right. That'll be a challenge because I think we have, uh, do we have any franchises opening for your new church, Peter? Uh, yeah. So there's one in the LA region that um, a... Uh, co-host who wishes to remain anonymous will be uh, heading and then there's also the uh, Hartford Connecticut one that will be opening shortly by the end of 2022 do you have a verbal contract or some kind of a pro forma purchase order or something for those it's actually written in blood is it um, yes with or without the um, franchisees consent so, mm. so mm. it should be interesting there's plenty of uh, quack religion retail space that you available for sublet in the los angeles area that i can attest to so i think it's a good idea to start your religion there yes I, absolutely quacks quack religion real estate yeah you got everything you need out here so i think that's a wise choice okay so this one this one's actually for dan and it has to uh, i think there's a good segue there from uh your feedback dan i think you've been a great addition to the podcast always appreciate your succinct and yet comprehensive Summaries and analysis. What would be your preferred method of demise? Asking for a friend. Signed, definitely underscore not underscore a underscore co-host. Well, thank you, definitely not a co-host for your mail. Um, <clears throat> you know, being on this podcast has let me think a lot about ways that I would like to die, given that, you know, when you enter into this type of agreement, that's always a possibility. But, you know, I was thinking maybe, you know, the preferred way might be uh, 
you know, being thrown off the roof of a large religious compound uh, that may or may not be opening near my house. So. <laughs> that seems like a nice way to go. There's probably some insurance angle I can play there. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we could generate some publicity for my new, no, excuse me, someone else's new uh, religious franchise that may or may not be, be located somewhat near me. And we so that, that's my thought. May or may not make some kind of payoff happen so that, you know. Anything's possible. <laughs> anything's possible. Especially once you start getting. Through Peterism is anything is possible. It is, including human flight. Yes. <laughs> Temporary human flight. All right. And then uh, we got a another fan mail. This one's directed at Jason. What? Jason. Who is going to replace Dan once he mysteriously leaves the podcast? Is that from definitely underscore not yeah. underscore the underscore same underscore fan underscore who underscore is underscore not underscore a underscore co-host? Actually, this one's signed Dan underscore not underscore your <laughs> underscore co-host. It's a little weird, right? How it's almost like this Dan fellow wants to know who to look out for. Yeah. So I'd like to take this opportunity to offer our listeners a chance to write into us at the Such Nerds website, www.suchnerds.com, if you have any interest in becoming a science fiction commentary podcast co-host in the near future. Or opening a franchise. You guys, you guys sure, sure do know how to make a feller feel welcome. <laughs> Dan, we love you, and we don't want you to go anywhere, unless it's into my belly. And I think, you know... As Peter mentioned last time, I mean, we've like we've we've hazed Dan enough, right? That's mm. what you said, right, Peter? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I also, I also He's a, a full member of the podcast, not just. I'm, a... I'm, I am fond of saying that you know, if you haven't really thought about killing someone, have you really loved them? And I think the answer is probably not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if someone doesn't annoy the hell out of you, are you really? married to them yeah do you, do you really <laughs> love them if you haven't thought because most people they, i would just blow off are they even right. your significant other have i spent enough time plotting people's demises speaking of plotting people's demises um <laughs> want to kick off uh the podcast talking about uh the mule and his uh search for things that is a great idea dan thank you for all the fan mail peter i think it's your turn, Dan, to enlighten us with the summary. What's going on here in these first three chapters? Sounds good, guys. So if, as you might remember, at the end of uh, Foundation and Empire, we, we last left our, um, our heroes Torn and Beta with the mule separating his ways off to find the second foundation. And so we begin the second foundation book with the aforementioned first citizen of the Union, the mule, at his new palace on Calgan, five years after the end of the last book. He meets with Han Pritcher and our new friend Bale Chanis, the unconverted, to discuss a new voyage to try and discover Selden's second foundation. Once aboard their ship, Chanis and Pritcher discuss the possible location of the second foundation, with Chanis deducing that it is located on Tazenda. Meanwhile, the psychologists of Sucken Foundation anticipate his arrival. Janice and Pritchard land on Rossum, a marginal world near Tazenda, and meet with Narovi, a farmer who arranges an introduction to the local elders in a bid for recognition. While on Second Foundation, the psychologists ponder how to handle the first citizen's arrival. That was great. That was very concise, Dan. I can see why our listeners like your uh, summary so much. Yeah, there's a lot of meat there to, to chim through. Sure. I really liked how he sort of you know, at through and at the end of each chapter, just, you know, allusions to the, uh, to the Sentin Foundation 
with just like a few paragraphs here and there just to get you know a rough outline of, of what's going on over there mm-hmm. so you're clear that there's two sides of this one right there's definitely subterfuge going on like at the end of every little chapter right and the interludes are the the subterfuge so well now we're into the meat of this episode of our podcast two men and a prophet and peter's furnace and peter's furnace <laughs> also jason's periodically <laughs> yes mine now so far as up in time yeah I don't, my furnace is not on actually i don't have a furnace in this in this place here so well but that anyway. sounds awesome I mean, it's like 19 degrees out right now. I know. It's, it's, uh, it was 12 pre- degrees here all day. Presently, uh, it was 78 here. So I'm sorry. Sorry, sorry to say. Yeah. But it's because you're a little closer to hell there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Pretty much fourth circle. <laughs> I think, um, you know, it's a little bit interesting when they first kick it off. And, uh, you know, the mule is sort of there in his by himself in his palace with no security. Um, he clearly has sort of moved on a little bit, but, um, you know, we were wondering at the end of the last book, you know, who was going to be around, whether the mule was going to be there or not. And, you know, it's not even one page in before he's, you know, they established that he's set a piece together and, and kind of set up the five years, just, uh, you know, working out things economically and organizing the galaxy. It seems like he's still very much in charge, like where we left him off. Yeah, there was a lot that was set up um, with him. And they even talk about like some of the motivations that I was, you know, trying to wrap my head around in the last book, which was like, why are you building a galactic empire? <clears throat> like if you are this rejected, you know, outcast from society, <clears throat> like your motivation seems to be like to unify these people. The mule is kind of contemplating his own motivations. And it's like, do I just want to control everything because I hate these people so much? It's it's almost like the author hasn't really made up his mind yet about why the mule is doing what he's doing at this point. Yeah, and I think we uh, we were kind of leaning towards benevolence almost with his uh, his rule at the end of the second book, where he relatively nonviolently, although I'm sure he faced violence or his troops faced violence, but relatively nonviolently handled situations with his opponents, right? And used his kind of mind conversion technique to peacefully gain the gain allies from his prior enemies, right? So now it's kind of the onions starting to peel back a little bit on is that is his motivation pure or is there something a little bit more devious or a little bit more underhanded involved? Yeah, and I think we first just we get, you know, revealed to us what one of the primary weaknesses of his empire is going to be, which is basically you sap like this critical essence of like a man's ambition or motivation or drive out of him when you conquer his mind. Right. So that's part of the reason that we bring in this new um, yeah. uncontrolled uh, man into Un- the scenario and unconverted, unconverted. Right. Yeah. Han, Pritchard is, you know, his right-hand man. General Pritchard. Yep, been unsuccessful in finding the second foundation on his own. Lieutenant, lieutenant general, technically, mm-hmm. the term was. But regardless, yeah, it seems clear, and he makes note of it, which I thought was interesting, that he's noting that somebody is sort of meddling with his with his guys. And so he brings in, you know, this 
this Bale Chanis, who it was not a, a little hint of Bill Rios, I thought, when I heard him come in, you know, Mr. Smug, sort of self, self-assured, sort of take-over-the-world kind of guy. I mean, whether he's – he said they say he's not quite 30, whether that was the same age. But I when he started going in, I was like, yeah, this 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 seems like a throwback because – yeah, he's got all that, all the same type of vim and vigor, as you you might say, that that he used to have, and sure that he knows what he's doing, and he's confident that he's going to be able to fix whatever's going on, and uh, unconverted as well. He sounds like an illustrious co-host almost. Yeah, I don't think you'll have any chance of getting Bale Chandis on this on this program, but we'll see. Maybe that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's already on the program. Oh, he's on the he's on the program. <clears throat> And unconverted. Yes. Is that your and, point, Peter? And, and as well, that's my favorite. To Peter's. One of my favorites. Still time. Not not quite thirty. He was in marvelously good odor in the Capitol. Mm. But that was. That's a funny funny little line. I also I'm gonna go ahead and throw out my first prescient prediction for the novel. I'm pretty sure that Han Pritcher is gonna kill the mule by the end of the book. That's where I think everything's going. Wow. Bold. Yeah. I'm I'm throwing that one out there. That is an interesting take. I, I didn't, you know, you can, you can tell that. I mean, so clearly in the beginning, they have the discussion and um, Pritchard's like, well, I don't know. We've been on five trips. You know, you, you even told me where to go and we, I can't find the foundation, you know, and or the, the second foundation. And, you know, they, the conversation back and forth is the mule saying, well, I can sense with, with Miz that, you know, he knew something. It was surprising enough to him when he found a location that it, you know, it seemed like there was something there. Um, but it sounds like Pritchard's kind of out on the idea of whether a second foundation even exists. I don't know whether that has something to do with whether why he brings in the new guy with sort of his fresh-faced idea. Sure seemed to, to kind of work out a little bit for him. You know, seemed to have some good ideas. Yeah, I mean, within the, what was it, the second chapter of the book, he's basically nailed down where he thinks Star's End is based off like the map coordinates and perspective to Tranter. And uh, I guess there's a nebula hiding behind. Tazenda? Tazenda, yeah. The kingdom or the whatever fife The star. Tazenda. You know, from Tranter, it just seemed like this lonely planet in like the night sky. And you can only see it, I guess, from Tranter because of the way that this nebula is. So that's star's end. That's like the last star in the sky. So that was, uh, I thought that was a, a a neat little way of hiding in plain sight, which feels very, you know, it's very subterfuge, right? It's very like, oh, I'm hiding in plain sight. You, you know, it's not, it's not a secret. It's not on the opposite end of the galaxy, 180 degrees directly from Foundation's main planet, which is called, help me out here, guys. Terminus. Terminus. Yeah, Terminus. So it's not, it's not in relation Tranderous. to Terminus. It's, it's not opposite to... end. It's not the opposite end from Terminus. It's a different right. end. It's a it's a different end, figurative right? Figurative end. Yeah. Right. Because my assumption was like it was in like you know the Delta Quadrant, if you know from the relative Alpha Quadrant where we've been or what have you. But I'm also I was also very impressed that they upgraded the you know Bill Rios's you know 3D maps with this new lens device that they've got there which allows them you know whether that's a 4D map or you know map simulator technology with a uh, street view i guess in the, <laughs> in the, in the, the beta galactic version. galactic street view yeah yeah he's going to basically use that to determine what it looks like what the night sky looks like from any given planet at any time like how many Google? gymnasiums of like computing powder do you think are there and do you think the rich, five richest kings of Europe could own one? 
how many nucleic web servers are spun up to trying to trying to host all that that galactic data i Guys, don't know it's all analog didn't you read the description of the computer that calculates the position in space all the it's circuitry. All, all analog it's yeah. all circuitry it's There's all no... vacuum tubes and circuits baby There's yeah wow no silicone involved you know, there's like one guy that's just like running around like Silicon. licking vacuum Sorry. tubes, like yeah. screwing them back in <laughs> right. really fast, testing yeah. them to get a match pair so that they that they work yes. right. And the... keep feeding the punch cards. Yeah, it was amazing how they managed to put it all on that ship, all of those punch cards. <laughs> and they keep them in order, which is really the whole ship is made out of punch cards, apparently. <laughs> like just taped together. Yeah. Well, I mean, you need all that massive computing power, which like makes sense, right? From well, that's probably why. Standpoint. Why the Mule City is empty is because they uh, it's entirely taken up by the lens. So he's got all the sort of like no people, no security because they can't afford them because they're all spent just running this convoluted analog search. <laughs> they're all running around changing vacuum tubes. <laughs> See, this is why you need the spice. Yeah, so that you can calculate all this stuff. Chattis seems to be quite the uh, uh, stage five guild navigator approach to yeah, you know. Yeah. So yeah, so there it is. Actual in intuitively time. calculating Tazenda's location. And yeah, yeah, just knowing it. So, so speaking of my uh, prescience again, I'm going to go back to my prediction. I just want to justify why I think that. They, the fact that they talk about uh, Han Pritchard's like revulsion at the idea of the loss of his like mind control from the mule makes me feel like it's like, oh, okay, this is just like another form of the passivity that's part of this mind control. And I think like once you let, you know, you take off the collar, so to speak, like his humanity will wake up and it'll just be like the mule straight up predicts it. He's like, if I were to release you of your mind control right now, you would shoot me where I stand. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I feel like they're setting something up here. No, you're, you're thinking of Hans Pritchard. No, Hans Pritchard. Oh, right. Yeah. Hans Pritchard's the mule's Hans, man. Hans yeah. Pritchard. He's Hans, Hans is going to pump him up with him. He's going to pump no, him he, up. He's with tin. First is what's yeah. tin, bullets. tin bullets. Nucleic laser. <laughs> I did notice there was some nucleics in there too, but I mean, at the same time, um, yeah, you can sense there's some some unease in general between the mule Pritcher early on, and then also Pritcher and, and Chattis on the plane or, or the, the ship when Chattis is, you know, talking about his whole plan. And it's really quite marvelous in terms of, you know, how well thought out it is and how correct it seems. But like, if I'm Pritcher, I gotta be like, you know, who's this punk showing up in my ship? I've been flying around for five years to try to find this thing. He's here for five minutes and he's already got the location nailed down. Right. I can't imagine that does any wonders for, you know, their relations there well he also like ha has some insight to himself right there as he's like did i was i actively trying to not find this thing like and why didn't i take the initiative to six years ago would have taken the initiative and just made this thing happen just like this punk kid did like <laughs> maybe there's more to what is going on than you think you you're know. better than me you think you're better than me Chattis? next like, time keep me informed me. i just like his cool response yeah you know, like very next cool. time run it by me yeah. Like almost like it was fine this time you get one. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I, I would like to just because <clears throat> I know you picked up on this, Peter, that the mm. titles of these three chapters centers on yeah, two men. Like, Always two men. Two men and a starts and with a baby, two men and two then men some and a accessory. Two men and a, and the mule, two men without the mule. So they're you know and then two men and a peasant. 
But what I would like to point out, Peter, is that after the next chapter, which is Two Men and the Elders, it becomes One Man and the Mule, and then One Man, the Mule, and Another. So I'm not sure, I don't know for sure, but just based on the titles, there's a chance that we might lose one of our two men, and I'm not sure which one it's going to be, but Bale is really kind of, he's earning his stripes, and, and Hans is uh, is deflating. He's not getting pumped up. He's, he's kind of deflating in his e- e- efficacy. So I'm going to challenge your prediction, and I'm going to mm. predict that either Bale serves his purpose and gets iced and, or the mule recognizes that Hans has run his course and uh, retires him fries his brain for for a new for another at some point I think I well, think he would uh, just keep him as an adequate administrator like maybe he'll be yeah. removed from his position but yeah. not necessarily from uh, promoted to gardening from life yeah promoted to gardener <laughs> after you have a a menage on mule. Somebody's got to go. It's really <laughs> I'm, so I would just like to inform our viewers that uh, Two Men and a Mule was a, the original name of our podcast. <laughs> like 50 Acres and a Mule. 40 Acres and a Mule, maybe. No, that's what you're getting paid. That's that's mm-hmm. how much it costs to join the yeah. franchise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yes, clearly. 50 Acres and a Mule. 50 Acres or the so Mule. I, I enjoyed... Um, I thought there was a lot of interesting things that came out of this. I, I genuinely found this uh, very interesting read. Um, we had a lot of jumping around. We had a lot of, you know, kind of setting up of plot points. We got our first mention of some sardonic action, which I got very excited <laughs> about. Yeah. And, and guess who's sardonic? Mr. Pritcher himself. Yeah. The smooth lines of Pritcher's dark face twitched sardonically. And yeah. he's, it's like he starts off. And, and, you know, we learned in the past about how sardonic and sort of like, you know, condescendingly sort of like mocking. And it's right before he, you know, Chattis launches into, you know, oh, yeah, and reads in the riot act of, of, you know, of space astrology, space geography or whatever. His doctorate uh, thesis of where the star's end is. And so I think the probably wipes the sardonic twitch off of uh, Pritchard's face pretty quickly, just in those five pages. Listen, I mean, I, if Han wasn't uh, a true foundation man before now, he is now because he's acting sardonically. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I enjoyed, I also enjoyed that little um, tidbit where basically um, our new guy whose name is alluding to me. Um, Bale. Bale Chanis. Yeah, Bale. Bale Chanis is uh he's acting like all of us did when we first found Google Earth. Like he's like geeking out like on moving around the different star systems. He's like, Wow, this is really cool. Pretty much. Oh, I can go here. Look at this. Go to Tazenda. Look, there's a guy waving on the street corner. At the end where you're like, Well, maybe he knows, maybe he doesn't know, but it seems they're indicating pretty much that you know they're right onto it. They they kind of clue in at the end, which is kind of funny. Couple every one, they're just like, you know, the, the various interludes at the end with the, the psychologist. It seems they're aware of the mule. They are aware that people are looking for him, and they're sort of like okay with it. You know, Pritchard at all is wondering, oh, we've well, had five years to prepare. Or maybe they're prepared. It's unclear what whether they're expecting us or not. And it seems throughout the interludes that 
they they know about the mule. They know he's looking for him, and yeah, they're almost sort of waiting for him to come to sort of uh, move the ball down the field a bit. Yeah, it seems like they talk. <clears throat> yes, that's a good point. So we have these like interludes at the end of each chapter, right? And the interludes are kind of like the parallel or opposing view from the second foundation council of each of these kind of time periods that we cover in the main portion of the of the chapter. And I kind of appreciated what Isimov's trying to do, but I don't quite have all the pieces, you know, straight in my head. It seems like they're this like tell almost nearly telekinetic group of people where they have such high, you know, sensitivity to human psychology that they can just kind of look at each other and understand like what their mind is projecting or something like that, right? There's this kind of almost mule-like sensitivity to emotions. And it sounds like, based on what you mentioned earlier, uh, Dan, about the uh, mule noticing that some of his guys are getting messed with, it it seems like they also have, whether it's projecting from them as humans or they're using some device, it seems like they have the power to adjust the minds of humans to a degree as well. I'm not quite yeah. sure what that exactly means for them, if they're just derating the mule's level of emotional control or if they're actually injecting some other kind of emotional affinity towards the second foundation or something like that. Some kind of motivator. Yeah. I mean, they pointed out, like, the point being made is that the minds assembled understood thoroughly the workings of each other, not only by general theory, but by the specific application over a long period of these theories to particular individuals. Speech as known to us was unnecessary. The fragment of a sentence amounted almost to long-winded redundancy. A gesture, a grunt, the curve of a facial line, even a significantly timed pause yielded informational juice. It's basically like they're sort of like, like you're saying, so in tune to sort of the subconscious and sort of almost the, that they don't even need to sort of communicate in, in crude things like words and language. They can just sort of ascertain through through inference <clears throat> at the same time, like you're saying, probably able to, to adjust the fine tuning on the various people similar to what the mule does. But if you think about it that way, there's one mule and there's who knows how many people on second foundation, you'd think it wouldn't even be close to a fair fight, mm -hmm. you know, between if they show up, they'll basically just be like shooting people down with their eyes. It's like an anime or whatever. There's like each guy has a superpower. They just shoot them at each other. And it's like, well, is the mule's mind ray like more powerful than 5,000 psycho, psycho historian psychologist mind ray? Like, yeah, it's the it's the blue spiky one. And then yeah. the second foundation, they shoot the like the red oozing like lava yeah. against the blue spiky like ice ray. And yeah, but I don't so know then, who yeah. they just like <laughs> right in the middle. Yeah, it's like, just holding it. It's like the so it it sounds though like they they feel vulnerable, right? Because they they have co opted a bunch of like feudal peasants who can barely scrape together enough wheat and mutton mm -hmm. to you know survive the winter. The nuclear heaters. The the winter, which seems like it's you know. 90% of their year is winter and the summer it warms up to a whopping 50 degrees or something so the wheat can be harvested. So it sounds like they don't really have a lot of infrastructure to lean on. And even though their minds may be powerful, it's not like they've co-opted a whole, you know, army of, uh, of capability technologically 
that they can command like the mule can through his people. Right. And the comment was that basically they just <clears throat> essentially made walls, you know, like they, they dominated the planets surrounding their planet, but not, you know, they didn't push forward past that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. And that was like one of the tip offs for the location within the existing foundation. Well, so. one of the things going back to your point earlier about about making who's going to get what and which one of these guys is going to get wiped out. You know, there's one point in the second interlude that I found interesting because, you know, they, they the first interlude, they'd say, oh, well, make, 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 I think we'd have to I think we'd have to you know, expose ourselves to the mule in a certain sense, you know, make him aware of us. Right. And then the second interview, everybody boos him. Yeah. Like in second, a certain the, sense, you know, the second one is like, Oh, well the mule's on his way. Uh, risky, risky. And then he says, the mule is not an ordinary man. And it is difficult to manipulate his chosen instruments without detection by him. The controlled minds are difficult to touch. They say he's caught on to a few cases. Yes. I don't see how that can be avoided. Uncontrolled minds are easier, but so few are in positions of authority under him dash. And it's like maybe yeah. that's what yeah, it's Chanis set gets up. the yeah, you know, it's getting set it's, up as sort of uh you know, whether the mule's doing it because he wants them to act upon him and that's how he's gonna verify it, or whether hmm. yeah, I don't know who's playing the more four dimensional chess between the mule and the psycho and the psychologist. It's sort of interesting to know. And Chan uh Bale Chanis also like he's reflecting on looking for the second foundation and he says Remember, it would be a world of space knows how many mules, right? So he's expecting it's mm-hmm. like mule power okay. to the exponential of something, you know, because mm-hmm. all these, you know, mules are basically projecting their mind power from the second foundation. And then in our third interlude, the second foundation is attempting to basically keep the Selden formula going by introducing the variable of a mutant. And they actually comment about the different extreme permutations that they have to make to kind of predict what's going to, what the outcomes are going to be. Cause they don't actually know what all his powers are, or how you know far his reach is and stuff like that. So, yeah, which I found interesting, like, Oh, you're trying to bring this concept back to life that we killed in the, last book right yeah i thought they went to such such extreme lengths to talk about how crummy it is on rossum that i thought you know it's like you know they're just making how crummy how stupid the animals are and how are and how you know ominous the forests are and you know the the, the best is like they got this stupid wood that they pulled together for housing and how poor the wood is and then you know they tried exporting it and they said the ships of the empire came at times and brought in exchange farm machinery Nuclear heaters, even television set. Televisors. Yeah, I, yeah, I like Televisors. that. It's like television sets. Like, where's the sit? Where? What is the entertainment channel that's being projected on these televisions? Yeah, they said it's not in Congress, but the long winter imposed the lonely hibernation upon the peasants. Good thing they got like the Dick Van Dyke Show or whatever the heck. They have like yeah. Google Glass, but then they don't have like wood floors. Like they talk about the dirt floor hovels that they're living in. Yeah, and, the, like, and don't he's you like, export wood? Like yeah, why don't you He's got wood? two chairs. He's got two chairs. <laughs> and he's got to give them to the guests because he's got two chairs. Meanwhile, the entirety of their planet is just crummy woods forests. They have nothing to do indoors the entirety of the year. We couldn't right. make another chair. And hooch. He's got like a big bottle of something in the back. <laughs> right, right. The fun yeah, he's making like He's waking, making like tree booze in the back. It's it's next to his uh, vegan cigar box. Well, that, yeah, that's one of the, the have any vegan cigars. One of the de- definitions of like how everything went to pot 
is like they're like, and they couldn't even get tobacco anymore. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, like, pathetic. <laughs> they couldn't even couldn't even get a cigar. Oh, God, so, must be hell. <laughs> well, it's like what the guy, you know, the guy, whatever his name is, uh, that they're you know they're meeting there. He's trying to like get these visitors and use that to like get himself some sort of cabinet post or something. Just get the favor of the <laughs> some, elders. Some yeah. sort of like you know. I like that he's up with removal. You know, he's, he's, he hasn't quite yes, Nairobi. He hasn't quite figured out like you know complaining to his wife that she's got to get something together, cobble together whatever you know sticks and stones they've got and get the chairs out and you guys sleep on the floor because this is my big chance to, to basically. You know, who knows what, get a mid-level management position in the local, you know, government or whatever. Yeah, it's a it's a very weird society. He already has a righteous beard. Yeah. <laughs> he has a but righteous beard. He's beard. ready. He's ready to be promoted to elder yeah. of the herd. He's certainly, he's got that. It's probably useful, <laughs> you know, if you live in, a ice, in Hoth, the ice world of Hoth. <laughs> Riding around your stupid tauntauns. Yeah, literally. They smell terrible on the outside and the inside. Oh, I just, I just thought it was weird. Like they, their whole kind of setup is very strange. They're living in huts, right? They're not living in like sheds or you know cabins. And then they have cars. There's cars on the planet still. Yeah, but it's like Cuba. They're like holding together with barn wire and duct tape. Yeah, yeah but leaded gasoline. They got. Dirt floors and huts, and their major export is wood. Yeah. Well, the best <laughs> thing is at the end of the chapter, you know, they finally the noble the, the the elders are coming, and he's like, "Oh, transportation's been arranged." I was like, "What? What kind of transportation do they have on this? You know, log flume or something like <laughs> ice canoe?" So that thing's all ice dammed up, man. Yeah. Yeah, and he's and he's just begging him when they leave, just oh, please make mention of the of us to the to the elders, so they can you know. Yeah, whatever it is that uh, you're hoping to achieve. I thought of you, Peter, a lot when the, he was going through the uh, the description of Nairobi. And when he's going through the, the description of Nairobi and his house, you, you just kept popping into my head, Peter, because, you know, first of all, they call the people of Rossum, they're called Rossumites. And I know you really latched on to the Terminites as the <laughs> people of Terminites. Until we found out that they were like boringly called the Foundationers, right? Yeah, but it, Foundationers. Much better name. Yeah, Foundation Nerds. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's nerds. us. Yeah, we're the Foundation that's... Nerds. Um, and then he's it's like, like the way he talks to his wife, he's like, <laughs> wife, he called vigorously, <laughs> old woman, come here. <laughs> That's it's very, like right. It's like very really much. Lays it on thick. But here's the, the most the most uh, associative thought I had of Peter was actually um, there was two mentions of it, and uh, they were talking of I think they were talking of the trade. Uh, Tzenden machines and Tzenden food were better than the native stuff, and there were clothes for the women other than gray homespun, which was a very important thing oh yeah and anytime they say something important i always think of peter well that and taking care of women that's also something right, i do right. when he yells old woman that's definitely uh that's definitely did did the desperation in his voice come through because then it would definitely would have been me please listen to me yeah and then he's also talking about 
Uh, he's ta- again uh, talking to his wife. Rovi lifted a finger. Old woman, what was it the village elders said? A sen night since. I don't know what a sen night is. Then he says, A, stir your memory. The elders went from farm to farm themselves. Imagine the importance of it. That was it. I mean, there's more to it, what they say, but that was the part that reminded me of Peter. Imagine the importance of it. Anytime you see something very important. He says, old woman, get us, get them the two chairs and get them all the (laughs) five things we have so they can give us the recommendation to the elders. Uh, what sort of what sort of uh, welcoming drink do you give somebody? You know, like you, you give him your best potato hooch. Yeah, is, is, is it like a there's like sap from the trees maybe that they can make like kind of like a like maple syrup booze syrup distillery like, like maple syrup schnapps of some kind that they're drinking. So at the end of this whole description of the Rasamites and Narovi's position and his like plea for consideration and and recognition of the elders i basically concluded that this is like a planet of space communists right (laughs) it's it's really Mm -hmm. like they have a car that's allocated to them they can't get repairs for it you know i mentioned cuba just that's what pops to mind like when -hmm. i think of people scrounging to keep their cars running but it's really like the whole setup is very allocation based and it's like you know, you're... I thought the same, except I, I thought like, you know, Vladivostok or something, you know, somewhere deep in like the Soviet sort of, uh, you know, way out in the, like in the, the Arctic circle in Siberia. Yeah. yeah. Super. Yes. I, someplace super far where like it's, you know, it's a communist society, but at the same time, it's like so far away from anything useful that like, you know, that, that I had that in my head that these people are just like essentially Soviets. Left yeah, to their I, own devices, moving their cars with their feet yeah, through like holes Flint, in the floor. <laughs> Flintstonian <laughs> technology. Yeah, they don't even have anything to, to do. But yeah, I got that same feel. Yeah. You know, if you live in Ethiopia or something, you know, or Afghanistan, even probably more appropriate because there's no method of communication. It's like impassable. The geography sort of dictates that you're going to be, you know, not a super advanced civilization because there's no way to sort of scale an economy. And obviously, if you live, you know, in a freezing cold planet with no natural resources, you're, you're kind of you're, you're kind of starting out behind the eight ball a little bit. But, uh, you know, whether there's something to be said for the fact that the people are all unambitious or whatever has something to do with it. No, could be, who knows? it could be an excellent location for your vacuum tubed computer technology to stay cool. <laughs> yeah. You know, just like use the ambient temperature to keep those those tubes from overheating, I guess. It's not bad. How how you transport them all over there? I don't know. <clears throat> but at the same time, I mean, right. like with all those bad suspensions on the vehicles, you know, they'd be shaking the crap yeah. out of those two. Can't imagine. And, I can't imagine. <laughs> can't imagine that the road system on on uh, you know Tazenda nearby. It's, it's not. It's not Tazenda. It's like whatever Rossum near Tazenda. It's Rossum. Yeah. I well, I mean, I like affected. a starship landed like in this dude's front lawn, basically, right? <laughs> So right. maybe yeah. it's a, maybe the transportation is not that much of an issue. Well, but he's like, they must be important. It's like, well, they have a spaceship. Probably puts them pretty high up on the list of people he's running around with. Right. You Do know, you own a spaceship? Old woman. Old woman. <laughs> yeah, I have a spaceship. It's just like a. It's like Beverly Hills. Like they have spaceships just up on blocks in the front yard, just missing parts. Like junker spaceships. <laughs> like junker spaceships, just like 
grass growing all through them or whatever. Right. There's a raccoon living in one of them. Yeah, pretty much. Like, oh, just me, leave Mr. Tibbs alone. He's real angry this time of day. <laughs> Mr. Tibbs. Mr. All Tibbs. Right. Yes, whatever, whatever space raccoon, you know, sort of exists in so, that part uh, of Galaxy. Do we want to uh, hit up hit up our uh, our usual checklist of what was the most ridiculous technology that we bumped into? Yeah, I only I only found those nucleic heaters, and I don't, it wasn't clear whether they were nucleic television sets as well, or uh, you know whether they were they're steam powered television sets that are co gened with the nuclear heaters to uh, to be powered. Were they television sets or were they televisor sets like Google Glass? <laughs> I thought I saw that they were televisors. Well, I just sort of followed up that they had said in the sentence after that, well, it's, does it doesn't sounds ridiculous, but you know, it's probably not the worst idea since they even television sets. Glass was not really in Congress for the long winter imposed a lonely hibernation upon the peasant. And they talk about imperial history, but you know, I didn't see too much I don't see too much of anything there. Um, on that planet, anyway, I think that you know the lens, the analog lens. You know, when you really drill down into it, it's kind of preposterous in terms of having that computer power just sort of operating on a on an analog um, system framework. Yeah, I that was for me that was like the most kind of wasteful use of of page space was just like he went on and on about this amazing technology of this lens that calculated from the Trantorian orientation, you know. All right. the, to be uh, fair, Jason, like when was this book written? Yeah, like 56 or something. Like that know. would have melted your brain in the 60s. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but I think uh, like <clears throat> for me, it, it – was like a, a disillusionment of maybe I got a little hyped up because on our season one finale, I remember, you know, Brent made the point that he kind of gets out of jail by not getting into the details about computers. And then at this point, he goes into this like deep tirade on this super analog lens. calculation for the, for the lens technology. And he just blows his cover because he just now ties himself to the technology of the day that, you know, kind of degrades the level of imagination that the reader gets to apply to the technology that they're using, right? So it's but uh, yeah. Nineteen fifty three, by the way, it looks like. Say it again. Nineteen fifty three. Fifty three. Yeah. In my yeah. version anyway. When did we first put a man on the moon? Sixty nine. Right. But, it, but yeah, like the, yeah. yeah, and then I think it like the thing that blew it for me was he talks about, you know, there's probably a slight error because of the gravitic deviation of light that I haven't the math to calculate for, but I'm sure it can't be significant. So like in this whole elaborate thing, there it's still imperfect, mm -hmm. um, and there's still like math that they can't handle so it, it was just but, it felt like he kind of went back and forth on it and it was just like i would rather just talk about how amazing it is to look at yeah and, and leave, and it leave there. the rest up to the imagination and save me 10 minutes of time i mean exactly. he talks about you know how the part where it was like clearly a transformational technology and allowed them to calculate hops and space travel at a you know 
that used yeah, to take weeks to calculate. Yeah, and nobody cares. Weeks, really? You guys didn't figure out like a cheat on this thing? Yeah, nobody cares how big the pumps are on the axolotl tank, Asimov. <laughs> just know that it works. Yeah. Right. Know that you can I, travel through space. I found a lot of pretentious words. I didn't find any weird technology, but this one I had I had to look up a few of them, and the one that like really stuck in my craw was, you know, he's he's trying out the new technology, and he goes, "It was so simple that a tyro could operate it." I was like, "What's a tyro? T y r o." It's a to- like, it's like a novice. Yeah, like a neophyte. Yeah, yeah, like, like a neophile. Sure, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's just a uh, a time frame word. It's not like fancy. It's just like something that they call like a little kid in like or like an, an, a beginner in the 1950s. I I get the feeling that Isomov just like will go back through his work and be like, I'm gonna find a thesaurus word for this. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what it said, 1953 slash 1981. Maybe he went back and just, you know. Rewrote it more favorably up, for Updated him. it with uh, more appropriate late 70s, early 80s technology. Yeah. If, uh, if I can bring us back on, on topic here, um, you know, yeah. to talk about the language piece of it before I go into my other thing, um, he uses the word hold the fort or the, the phrase hold the fort. And I thought that that was like another good example of like, there's no language drift. Like we barely use hold the fort today because nobody has forts anymore, right? It's not how we how we fight battles, like in modern warfare, we don't build forts, right? <laughs> and so- You don't use the expression holding down the fort? I, I certainly use it, but it's like, it's still present in our recent history. 50,000 years into the future, I can't yeah, imagine cool. that hold the fort has any relevant meaning to an average, you know, speaker. Yeah. It just seemed a little bit of a, a slip of. Well, know, when the revolution very... comes. Jason. But I, I don't, I don't view it as, <laughs> I kind of view it as like, you know, it's like the Jetsons as I view it. Like it's futuristic, but it's still very clearly like 1950s, 1950s. era sort of like. <laughs> The future of like, 1950s, not the future yeah, it's of like the a future. future 1950s, you know, it's just like they're that's where they are. Even if they're super futuristic, they still have these sort of, you know, sort of retrograde. It's still Art Deco. Tensions. It's Art Deco future. <laughs> exactly. It's like mid-century modern future that they have exactly. there. You know. Yeah. You know. So here's one thing relative to the story that I liked was when Bell Chanis was showing um, Pritchard the you know the map of the galaxy and the stars and all that and he moves the screen and quietly applies you know the while he's quietly applying acceleration to the vehicle to put them on course where he wants to go without running it by Pritchard before he makes the navigational move and then he tells Pritchard afterwards like I bet you thought you were just having like an optical illusion of the map moving right but yeah we were actually accelerating on our course that I already decided and programmed into the navigation computer or whatever. I thought that was pretty pretty cute and uh, yeah. I like that part. Check this out old man. Yeah. You melt your brain move. with this new technology. Yeah. It's like and he's like he's like suspicious of Pritchard, right? That's why he did he did it. He didn't want Pritchard to n- alarm anybody. Or anybody on the ship to notify anybody, I guess, before he told him why they're going that direction. 
Speaking yeah. of alarming uh, and and notifying, they found a little bug that I thought was a interesting little yeah, tidbit. Yeah, I didn't follow that totally. Yeah, so they he removes they, it and then he goes yeah. back and Pritchard verifies that it's there. And I wasn't sure. You're right. I wasn't was, sure. I, was Pritchard like, didn't verify it. Yeah, he did. Uh, he checked oh, on he it. Oh, he did. Yeah, at one point okay. it says he checked on it and it's still there. And he was like scratching his, his 30 days of growth. Yeah. Um, you know, wondering why, like, it was still there. I I, I didn't get quite capture all the meaning, but Chanis found it through the engineer, had the engineer find dig it out, and when he realized what it was, he told him to put it back and pretend they never had that conversation. And then Pritcher checked on it later, so it's like Pritcher wants the mule, or he's the agent of the mule, letting him know where they are. Maybe he didn't want chanis to know that the mule was following them i don't something like that or maybe it's it second foundation relevant. we don't actually know like, who the bugger like is it's relevant to right. the plot somehow yeah it is it's definitely like a seed of a plot point right foreshadowing <laughs> yes as long as it's not a nuclear puncher that they don't properly know how to use yeah. do you it. think there's a mini nuclear device operating this little bug or, or not it is a hyper relay so it probably has some kind of power source. I'm pretty sure it's not a lithium ion battery. Right. That technology that's doesn't projecting exist. projecting across the universe. Yeah. No, it's paradigm coal. <laughs> <laughs> Gone backwards. Coal fired. Coal fired. The, the, they find out who actually relay. is operating the bug because the dude has to like go back every 30 days to like fill up the coal again. Yeah. No, they like get it, delivered. Like he lifts lifted. like the tiny furnace window and shovels like a couple of crumbs right. of coal in there. The way they found it was the the smoke coming out. The soot. Yeah, the there was a soot mark on the wall where the soot was like. <laughs> More dogs. More dogs on the fire. So, yeah, go ahead. Any, any no, other uh, I, I had forgotten about it completely, but it seems like, you know, between that and, you know, kind of the give and take between Chanis and um, Pritchard there, you know, and that and the mule, it all seems like, you know, it's coming coming around, but I think one thing I did really appreciate was it seems like the structure of the book and the way it's written, there, there's definitely a much more tight sort of story arc to it that's kind of building. Um, that I so I found it a much more sort of engaging read um, in terms of how it it kind of now it's still structured as first part is the mule looks and the second part is that foundation uh, looks, but yeah, I think that there is weaving a nice story arc that that uh just three chapters in things like there's a lot more coming down the road yeah i think our next chapter is two men and the elders it's interesting that you know we kind of take it for granted the way he writes about these quote-unquote people but we don't get a lot of sense of kind of like maslow's hierarchy in their Mm -hmm. in their persona and their behavior like what is their self-fulfillment? Like, are they, do they have some view of their lifestyle that is, makes it feel noble or worthy or their, their suffering is Zen Buddhists, right? Like like, we don't need material possessions because we've learned to adapt in this harsh environment. Right. And make tree hooch. Right. And, and like that may work for a generation or something where you have like a cause to rally behind. But once you have kids who like, 
they're like, what the heck is Trantor? Like, I want to go, you know, I want to borrow the keys, hang out with my friends, you know, drink hooch in the woods, <laughs> get some tattoos, you know, mm-hmm. like, to I don't care about psychology. So many woods. Right? Yeah. Exactly. And so, like, how are they perpetuating this kind of, like, Spartan, um, you know, noble cause behavior through the generations of these psychologists? Well, I mean, they might – oh, through the psychologists. Of the Maybe second foundation. I think, well, they have, like, their, their – I don't know. The, when you say, like, the fate of humanity rests on your shoulders, that works fine. Now, for the people who actually live on that planet, like, they're just stuck there, right? Like, they don't have any means they don't of interplanetary any... right. travel. They got their car that's, like, half made of wood, right, <laughs> that they, they push with their feet. <laughs> and it's, like, that's the highlight of the day, right? Yeah. That and getting hammered. Still in log flow. You know? Yeah, I don't, I mean, do you, th- do you think, I mean, I, I, I didn't put two and two together, but do you think it's exactly the same on Tazenda or it's just on this nearby world? I think it's just this backwater planet. I think Tazenda <laughs> is probably fairly comfortable. I was uh, thinking, like, um, you know, like uh, Black Panther, where it's like, yeah, you know, from the outside, Wakanda looks like this whatever random place. But then you like go into it, and they have these super advanced technology, but it's just hidden under this cover of, uh, you know, of basically like hiding in plain sight. And whether there was some of that, where on the actual planet, like it's just, you know, you dig into it and go on the planet, you realize, oh, well, like they have like all these amazing amenities, but they're just not visible from space. Right. Maybe some because otherwise, you, your point, Jason, how if I'm like this savant, you know, telekinetic person, why am I going to live in just a dump for generations and generations? <laughs> right. No, so, no I want my kids to have a life, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, so, so here's one theory. Trash farming. Apparently. Maybe because they're so good at psychology, like people are like actually happy there and like don't want society to crumble. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. They own the means of production. Clearly, Peter. I'm not talking like in a like a communist sense. I mean like in an emotionally fulfilled, healthy, mm. yeah, like home like. life relationships. <laughs> I, have, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, there's no <laughs> there's no extended rifts between like the governed and the gov like and the government yeah, or I've, I've never corporations heard of dominating society. Yes, to never like, heard of it. Well, so to like be that. fair, exactly. This is why it's a fantastical world. Well, yeah, to, to, never heard of such a oh, thing. Yeah, hold on, Peter, because to be fair, that is called the oligarchy of Tazenda. Mm, nice. Well, it's always a meeting of minds, correct? Yes. It's a quasi-fascistic operation. Yeah. Just, you know. Run by the producers. Pepsi and Coke, just running the government. <laughs> <laughs> General Motors. And president General of, Motors. And president Maybe that's why of there's the a planet. car on this like random yeah. backwater planet. General Motors CEO and president of the world. Yeah, basically. Yes. A car, a car, a wood car in every driveway and a chicken in every pot. Lord right. business. Pooch in and... every backyard. Yeah. <laughs> so I think uh to to kind of wrap things up where we end at the end of this third chapter is, you know, I'll read the last two lines here. It says, it was easy enough to handle his men. They reacted and were reacting according to plan. So they're, you know, they have the second foundation path, right? Their plan, and they're fulfilling their plan. Somehow that intertwines with the, or or backstops the first foundation's plan or something. I don't know. I think that's yet to be kind of 
laid flat. And then they end it with the question, but what of the mule himself? So it looks like in the next chapter, they have we have our meeting with the elders. And then from there, the mule gets kind of reintroduced in the storyline. So um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where this goes and how and who gets the boot from the two dudes that we've been following through these first three chapters, Bale and, mm-hmm. uh, and Han. I'll see if I have to reconsider my personal association with Mr. Pritchard. So uh, I think for next week, we're going to dig into chapter four, five, and six and get to the end of this first uh, part. So the, we'll end out part one uh, in our next episode. I think that about wraps it up for tonight or today or whenever you're listening to our Such Nerds podcast. We look forward to another season with you and... For now, we will bid you farewell. I have been your host tonight, Jason from Connecticut, with my co-hosts, Peter from New York, and Dan from Los Angeles. Have a good night, everybody. Thanks, guys. Have a good night. Bye-bye.